0: Hello and welcome to the Jules Weber podcast. Um we're back in the studio today and by that I mean my daughter's walk-in closet. I love being in this in this space. It is it's cozy, there's no distractions. I feel so free to focus, to just kind of be in yoga pants and a hoodie, kind of sore from Pilates, and really clear-minded right now. This is something, uh, this, this, this whole episode, man, is one of the, the most special and important pieces of my work, of my story, of my life. Uh, and that is the journey of coming to understand attachment, Attachment was one of the very first things that ever interested and excited me about relationship work, about intimacy work. And I have seen many different iterations of it taught in different ways and different theories, categories, attachment styles, labels. I mean, you name it. And first of all, I think it's brilliant. Um, A lot of the, you know, the early research on attachment isn't even that old, 50, 60 years. And what, what we've learned when it comes to attachment is that there are fundamental drivers in us as humans that keep us moving toward each other, toward closeness, toward connection. That fundamentally, as a species, we are never going to stop trying to connect. And that in itself is, is remarkable and beautiful and special and, and shows, in my opinion, our incredible resiliency and even on a, on a deeper level, our incredible faith. And I would say as well, attachment holds some of our deepest woundings. My my deepest pain comes from my attachment wound. And I don't even say that to, you know, make attachment wounding sound like it's insurmountable or um, impossible to heal. It's absolutely not. I would also say that this area requires and needs deep love and embodied care and nuance and nurture and attention. And if there's one, if there's one thing that I've learned, it's that it isn't enough just to understand this on an intellectual level. And so you're not going to hear me talk a whole lot about like the definitions of the attachment styles. You're not going to hear me talk a whole lot about, um, you know, attachment theory itself. There's a ton of literature about that already. Um, but what I am going to talk about is a bit of just my own personal story of how I came into awareness of my own. Attachment wound, what that work has looked like for me, some in- misconceptions that I see around attachment theory and the way that it's taught, and some uh, maybe some strategies uh, for for self soothing and, and what the healing process kind of does look like. And so, yeah, let's uh, let's get going. First, I'd love to share actually that um, I have a new program coming up. It's actually not a new program. It's A program I did, um, I've done a couple of times in the last year, and we're about to relaunch. It's called Sovereign Love. It is an intimate, small group coaching program. Uh, The only way to meet with me in a small group of women on a weekly basis, face-to-face, where we just hold each other in a group setting that's led by me. And it's all based in our fundamental sovereignty in love in our wholeness and not in the sense of an independence like I often see the word sovereign used lately more autonomy but more in in the true sense which I believe is abundance it's abundance it's it's a trust in life and in love that I believe is um deeply feminine and when it's integrated into our sense of who we are and our wholeness it it changes everything and so this small group coaching program for me is aimed at developing our sense of wholeness as women our sense of selves our sense of who we are our activism in the world um and it's a few months long. And so if, that, if the idea of that sounds intriguing or interesting to you, um, please check it out. You can find it on my website, julesweber.com, or um, head over to my Instagram at the link in my bio where I list all of my programs, and you can get on the wait list for that. Uh, we will likely be launching signups very soon. So I kind of want to start from the beginning. I feel like that makes the most sense here. My first encounter uh, in a major way with my attachment wound, I I mean, I would say I have, you know, kind of painful memories of it um, from all throughout my life. So my, my parents were gone quite a bit for me as a child. And for, you know, whatever reason, my deepest wound is with my mom more than my dad. They were both gone quite a bit. But most of my like emotional energy for from this and, and my work has been centered around kind of that relationship with her. And but both my parents were active duty military. They would be deployed or stationed other places for months a year at a time. And so there were several years of my childhood where I lived with one parent. There were a couple of summers where my sister and I lived with you know family members, family friends because they were stationed somewhere else at the same time. And there there was very much an, an experience in terms of my attachment with them and with my mom that I just never kind of knew what to expect. I never knew, like, if they were going to be home this year or the next year. Um, and back then, you know, we didn't have, like, FaceTime or even... Internet in the in the earlier part of my childhood, and and so we weren't like keeping in touch much, you know. And on top of that, I didn't really know how to connect with my mom even when she was home, or how to find emotional support in that relationship. She had her own experience dealing with the mental and emotional roller coaster of being postpartum and having two children of being in a really high stress, um, high achieving role in her job. In my opinion, the military at the time and maybe even now wasn't making room for women in the way that it needed to. My mom had a month of maternity leave with both my sister and I and she was back at work. And to me, that is absolutely unfathomable now. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen anymore. But to me, there's just no way that I could accept that. And so, um, I couldn't, couldn't feel as emotionally close with my mom as I wanted to. And I also never really knew what to expect with her. She did just, I mean, incredible, incredibly well with creating a life that felt stable in a lot of different ways for my sister and I but emotionally I would say that wasn't that wasn't the case as much and and a lot of that as well was just my own biases my own sensitivities the way that I was personally made and neither my mom nor I growing up in a in a setting where that was really honored where our deep sensitivity was honored and so I kind of grew up looking for the feminine like it's that kind of a deep connection and anchoring with the feminine and a space that I could really be seen in my dating life and with men where I would kind of you know chase them or one of the ways that I dealt with feeling rejected was by shaming myself I felt abandoned and so you know from very early on told myself the story that I just didn't deserve connection and love and attention and care and And, you know, I was growing up in a beautiful house and beautiful schools with a beautiful life. And I don't think anyone would have said, you know, I mean, I, I did well in school. I don't think anyone would have said like, oh, that Jewel, she's probably really struggling. And I myself was not aware that I was struggling. I just knew that dating boys never really went how I wanted it to. My friendships with women would often end um, in frustration. And I, I I, was just such a people pleaser. I was constantly vying for approval in ways that caused me to sacrifice my own boundaries. I had next to no boundaries. And um, where that eventually led me—that sense of of just isolation and loneliness and shame—was um, to the church, <laughs> um, to in particular a somewhat charismatic, you know, evangelical church, and I just picked up a lot of zeal for this message that I was fucked up, people were fucked up this idea that like people deserved hell and that that was kind of their destiny unless they believed that God had sacrificed his son, Jesus for their sake so that they would not be destined for that and that they could be destined for heaven. Instead, there are a litany of issues (laughs) with that story. Now to me, um, But back then it fit because I felt so much shame and this narrative that I was a bad person or, you know, that I was a sinner, um, it kind of just fit into every aspect of my life, you know, religiously and in dating with men, kind of the role that I took on as a wife, it showed up everywhere and it wasn't until my first daughter was born and she was born very, very, very prematurely while I was traveling in another city, you know, 1500 miles from home in Seattle. And I lived there for four months. And then I came back home after having not seen my friends for months. And I tried to kind of, you know, work my way back into community in the way that I had before, but I was fundamentally a different person and people had kind of moved on. And I realized that this sense of belonging that I had gained from being a part of this group where we all thought the same thing and did the same things and believed the same things, I realized that it was really slipping away. And that was very scary for me. And it got to the point where eventually I I just, I felt unwelcome in this community. and, um, And that's really putting it mildly. But when I stood on the outside of it, and I had realized that my beliefs and my willingness like not to question certain things and um, and the incredible like codependency and enmeshment that I took part in and perpetuated myself and like power dynamics and all of that when I when I st- you know, finally got into therapy, um, I realized, that was was the first time I realized consciously that, oh, I picked up on this narrative because it fit the way that I viewed myself. But I don't need to hang on to it anymore because it no longer gets me the belonging that I wanted. And, And that was when I first realized I can actually find an internal sense of belonging that nobody can take from me. And... At the time, I didn't know attachment theory, attachment language. I really was just getting acquainted with what does shame mean? What does belonging mean? Um, What does codependency mean, right? And But when I look back, uh, knowing what I know now, I can see that it was like there was a bomb that got set off inside of me at that time when I felt uh, like rejected by my community. I was in, in intense anxiety about it for almost, almost a year as I kind of dove in and tried to figure out what was going on. And I noticed that I had actually kind of recreated similar relationships after that, as I kind of learned about my wiring and what some of my, what some of my needs were and how I created these patterns. And this is where I, I would say that that when we're looking at attachment anxiety, and I share this story because it's kind of an out-of-the-box, like it's not even really about dating, right? Because we experience, those of us that experience attachment anxiety, we experience in many other places other than our dating lives, other than our love lives, We experience it with friendships. We experience it anywhere that we desire or seek approval or validation. We experience it at our jobs. We experience it when we put our creativity into the world. We experience it with our family members, our loved ones, our parents. And uh, we experience it with our neighbors, with the stranger that we say hi to at the park. I mean, this anxiety within us is, uh, it's it's fundamentally a call for connection, right? And it's also a fear that we won't find it, that it will not be offered to us. And then all of the stories that come along with that, that I'm not worthy of it, that I'm not wanted, that I've been left alone, that I won't be advocated for, um, that I won't be safe, that I won't be safe and it's our nervous system telling us that we're not safe and and it's in that that we recreate opportunities to feel unsafe in the same context repeatedly one after the other after the other and the first time I ever noticed a pattern of mine that I was recreating was in this, you know, kind of situation where I had um, felt rejected by my religious community. Two of the women were my very best friends and had been for years. And uh, our friendships kind of ended in an an explosion of just (laughs) resentment and codependency and fear. And I had looked at Every woman in my life who I had called my best friend and I noticed this pattern that I had become best friends with women whose approval I really wanted for one reason or another. And it was normally that they had started off saying something mean about me or gossiping about me and I saw them as popular or powerful and I was like I will make them my best friend because if I can make them love me I can make anyone love me and I would ultimately create unhealthy dynamics with these women that were codependent where I needed to be small and manipulative and inauthentic in order to feel the closeness and connection that I wanted to feel. Um, But it was often, you know, partly it was, I think it was partly, you know, that we, I really loved them and, you know, that was really like true, lovely friendship. But I also think part of it was a survival skill of mine. And I had to get really honest with myself eventually about the patterns I created with female friendships and dating relationships with groups And I I came to terms, you know, through therapy, through coaching, through lots of different things that, that I was basically building my entire life, my entire life, all of my life choices were built around this subconscious need to find a sense of belonging that could ultimately regulate my attachment anxiety, that could calm my intense fear that there was not going to be anyone or anything or any relationship that could ground me and stop the, the chaos of self-criticism and self-hate and self-shaming that was happening inside of me. And I, I use these terms and they might sound dramatic, but I think that not many of us really allow ourselves to come to terms with how intensely hard we are on ourselves. And I see this a lot in people coping with attachment anxiety because what they end up doing is they read some kind of book that talks all about attachment anxiety and then they go, oh, now I know what's going on with me. Now I don't have to deal with that anymore. And then they end up putting all their anxiety into overthinking every single thing that they do. And I get women all the time, all the time asking me questions that are something along the lines of, well, if I, you know, do X, is that chasing? If I do Y, is that early attachment? If I do this or that or the other, um, am I coming on too strong? Like, do I need to slow down? Do I, and there, it's like, I need to do the right thing so that I'm not, being anxiously attached and and i think we need to actually have a whole different and and by different i mean embodied relationship to this and that was my uh i don't want to say mistake but it was definitely an immaturity that i didn't realize at first when i started um studying attachment theory because in in a lot of the literature i will say there's one thing that kind of comes up short is There's a ton of literature about like how to communicate with your partner about what you're going through, how to support someone and validate their needs when they have attachment anxiety, all kinds of different things. And I'm speaking mostly toward anxiously attached people, but in a lot of the literature there's not a lot about an embodied response to it, but I want to just point out here that anxious attachment is anxiety, Anxiety is an embodied experience. It's happening in your nervous system. It's it's a dysregulation. It's it's basically like the opposite of calm. It's the opposite of soothing. It's it's a tension, it's a stress, it's an urgency. It's a fixation, an obsession. It's lots of different things, and we all have developed mechanisms for coping with that. I think the most common that you will see is that our incessant need to scroll social media. There's there's an, an incredible amount of anxiety in our life, and a lot of us are coping with that through numbing. Uh, myself myself included. I can I can notice myself getting caught in that. And so I, I want to I say that first, that an embodied approach to healing anxious attachment is absolutely essential. It is 100% essential. You cannot just read a book and go, oh, now I get this. Now I understand it. My therapist and I have talked about it and I can just move on from it. Healing anxious attachment actually takes practice. It takes intention. It takes effort, it takes love, it takes care, it takes participation in connection with ourselves, with other humans, and it happens over time. It is a gradual process. It's not something that we wake up from because we read a book. And I want to emphasize that because I see so many women, and this was me as well, Who read about this and they understand it on some level and then they go, oh, I shouldn't be doing this anymore. And then they're so hard on themselves when it still shows up and they notice that it's still creating dynamics that cause a very similar pain over and over again. And what I want to say is that your practice is being present to that, to the vulnerability of that and being present to it over and over and over again, and choosing boundaries for yourself, choosing communication, choosing relationships that allow you to feel safe where you are, and prioritizing your own safety. And from that place, assessing what is a step that I can take courageously, toward connection rather than kind of like being holed up in my foxhole just keeping myself super super safe which i like i want you to do sometimes that needs to be the first step that's definitely mine um i I just after that experience with my religious community and you know understanding that so much of my life was built around the codependency and enmeshment that kept me feeling like i belonged to something waking up to that becoming conscious of that I realized I didn't quite know how to do relationship and I went into a little foxhole and I didn't create close relationships for a little while. I was really with myself and that was healthy and ultimately I also wanted to reenter the world and I remember going through this process of learning how to trust myself to be in relationship without completely outsourcing my self-trust and what did it look like to trust myself to have boundaries and also stay open and honest and authentic and to choose where i wanted to put my energy and where i wanted to welcome energy in and where i wanted to not and to make those choices consciously and so and so we're kind of we it's like we maybe go in the foxhole for a second but then we come out And we assess, okay, knowing that I'm safe and I can make myself safe again, if I start to feel uncomfortable, what's a step that I can take toward creating the relationship dynamics that I ultimately want? And this is, this is the bittersweetness of this journey is, is we can't learn about this and then go, Oh, now it's fixed. I don't have to experience all that, that old pain anymore. Um, You know, it's over now and I I just need to be really paranoid and overthink and over-evaluate every little step that I take because um, if I get hurt again, that means I was wrong and I didn't heal enough and I should have done more. Again, this tendency to be hard on ourselves is ultimately just a coping mechanism for that attachment anxiety. It's just a story that we created when we felt like we didn't know what or who we could count on as children. And so we just said, okay, I'm the common variable here and I must be the problem and that feels reliable. Knowing that it's just me and it's me that needs to be fixed and it's me that's not worthy and that's something that I can... That's at least something that I can anchor in, even if it's not, even if it wasn't really true. And I find us, you know, still anchoring in that when we get anxiety, when we're afraid that somebody doesn't like us or they're not texting us back or we think they might be mad at us or we're afraid we don't belong or we weren't invited to something or he didn't ask us on a second date or your husband is upset about something and you don't know if you're the one that did something wrong. Um, And you need reassurance that everything's okay. It's like, I, I see us being hard on ourselves when we're in those moments. And what I think healing attachment anxiety is really about is being willing to be present to ourselves in those moments of dysregulation. And not necessarily... Reaching out to other people and things to be our life raft. But to reach within ourselves to that, you know, screaming child, that screaming adolescent, you know, whoever, whatever version of ourselves was traumatized at one point. And to hold that person, ourselves, hold that version of ourselves. And in addition, allow ourselves to truly receive um, connection from the world around us. I find that those two things are the essential components of healing attachment anxiety. What do I mean by that? You know, what does that look like? Well, let's talk about that. So a lot of my journey kind of, when I first started becoming aware of my attachment wound, I very much was somebody that needed other people to be a life raft for me. And I think that was a a big stressor in my marriage. When, you know, I kind of woke up to all of this and I didn't have my religious community anymore, um, who served as my close friends for years and years, you know, I kind of was processing all of this with my husband constantly. He was like my one person. And, you know, I can't speak for him now, um, but I would – I would say that that was probably very overwhelming for him and would be for anybody. Uh, It is for me when (laughs) people um, are that way with me. Um, And it's exhausting. And I would say at that time, I actually had no ability to self-regulate. Like, I mean, I can't, I, I say this all the time, but I was talking to a friend of mine and I was just you know, freaked out about some way that I was afraid that I was wrong in this situation and I was hard on myself and I couldn't sleep for weeks. And I think about that situation now and I'm like, there's just no way I would feel any level of anxiety about that. And I would let those people take care of themselves and come to me if they need to. And that would be that, you know, but at the time I I just, it was impossible for me to feel okay. And I was talking to a friend about that. And again she was someone that I had kind of, you know, life rafted her, I uh, used her as a life raft, uh, yeah, or I wanted to, but she had amazing boundaries. So it was really easy to kind of talk to her, but not be worried that she was like judging me or something. Cause she was really good at saying no, if she couldn't talk and then wanting to show up, you know, when she could. And she said to me, she was like, you know, just, just be gentle on yourself, be gentle on yourself. Like it's okay that this is hard. It's okay that it feels sad. And, and I just started weeping. I just thought, you know, I've never, I've never realized that I could be gentle on myself, that that's an option, that I don't have to berate myself or make myself wrong um, or make myself a failure. And I say that because I want to point out again that this being hard on ourselves, this like self-hating, self-punishing behavior is often at the core of our loneliness and where we can feel attachment anxiety. Because it says kind of like, well, I'm supposed to be able to be with myself and soothe myself, except when I am with myself, I feel punished and I feel alone and I feel abandoned because I can't feel the kindness of my own presence, of my own authentic soul and that kind of like God spark in me um, that is eternal and never leaves. I just feel this criticizer, this punisher. I feel these stories that I'm not worthy and the anxiety that surrounds them. And it wasn't until I learned the difference between being alone and being in solitude, which solitude I would say is really like being with yourself, you know, and being alone is like, I mean, you might physically be alone, but when I'm lonely, I don't know how to feel that I am with me. And when I'm in solitude, I can feel that I'm with me. And so the journey of, um, healing my attachment anxiety for me really began with setting boundaries with, you know, taking these small steps that initially caused even greater anxiety, but that made me safe and created a feeling of self-trust in me. Um, Healing my attachment anxiety started with Having honest conversations started with taking myself out of situations of people-pleasing but where I felt like I put a lot of pressure on myself. One major thing that helped me heal my attachment anxiety was working one-to-one with practitioners. And that's the biggest reason I offer one-to-one work. I think people don't realize this, but having a long-term relationship with a practitioner, a therapist, a coach, um, someone that works in this space where you can consistently show up in a securely attached environment allows you to, to practice relating securely over and over. You You show up into a container that resembles an intimate relationship. You get to share and not be judged. You get to practice dealing with your projections and transferences. You get to practice, communication, you, I mean, all kinds of things. And when you see that you can have and build a relationship that's truly stable and welcoming over time, it does begin to heal your nervous system. I strongly believe that I've seen that happen many times with clients, particularly my long-term clients. And, um, it's happened with me as well. Another, you know, another way that I've really seen like massive difference. And this is like, this is tough (laughs) to accept, you know, our, our attachment wound it's created in relationship and you know what, it can only be healed in relationship. And that is one of those just bittersweet truths of life. I did a lot of healing work in my relationship with myself through, um, doing a man pause and I affectionately call it a man pause. I've seen it called lots of different things, but it was nine months long. And I would say one thing that's really crucial. A lot of women tell me like, oh, I did a man pause kind of unexpectedly. It's only a man pause (laughs) if you set a beginning date and an end date and you see it through to the end date, right? Or you, I mean, you could change it if you want to, but it's not a man pause just because you were like, you happened to not be dating because you didn't go on any dates for two months and that now you had a two month man pause man pause or a man talks or a mentor of mine you know kendra kunov calls it like the no man diet is a, a period of time that you set aside and you say it's, it's for not seeking validation from men for a set period of time. And you set that period of time because inevitably during that time, you're going to want to reach out to somebody or download an app or do something or whatever it is, whatever you use to kind of source your validation. And it's all about sitting with that urge and not doing it um, and not following through on that and Facing your loneliness and facing your lack, um, and facing you know, like I was naming earlier, that kind of self-criticizer, self-punisher, and and creating avenues and access and pathways to uh, that divine feminine, divine masculine, particularly divine masculine presence, right and voice um, within us, and it's incredibly powerful and i remember in that time for me finally facing the very scary emptiness that was kind of behind my attachment anxiety that was like if there's no one here to hold me if there's if no one's going to choose me if what if no one ever marries me or whatever then am i, ult- am I ultimately meaningless does my existence ultimately mean nothing and that was probably the, the deepest fear I have ever come into contact with in myself, I feel so glad and so grateful that I did nine months of a man pause for that reason, because that fear had been with me. I mean, I had been aware of it at that point for five years, but my fear of my own meaninglessness was such a powerful driver in, in, in my relationships and dating. Um, and in my, even just my own lack of ability to like direct myself and my creativity and to just be, and, um, I was present to the anxiety that I felt around that, around the possibility of not being chosen and, it fortified me. I was able to be with myself. I found, you know, that my my nervous system would respond in ways where I would think I was going to die. <laughs> I mean, it's not logical, but ultimately our our deep fear is our fear of death. That is what we feel in attachment anxiety. It is a fear of death. And I was able to be present to my deepest fears and see that they were not killing me, that I wasn't dying. And I kind of transcended this intense wall of resistance that had existed in my life up until that point and my attachment anxiety or what, you know, or what I had left. And even at that point, I was really more avoidant, but so much opened in me, so much softened in me because I felt a deep confidence that, that I was meaningful to me and that I would be there for me and that my relationship with myself mattered. And I have approached the world in a whole different way ever since. Um, I have been far less needy of of validation. Um, I feel less need to look cool or awesome. (laughs) And my life has been a lot simpler. My days revolve around My own self-care, my work, taking care of my kids. Um, I live an incredibly simple life that I'm so proud of and I feel deeply free. And so I highly recommend that if attachment anxiety is something that shows up for you a lot in your dating life. Um, And for me, I actually did it because it was more my work that I wanted to create a healthier relationship with. And it ended up working on my attachment wound in ways that were ultimately just such a gift and then the other thing that I had to learn to accept too, and this was the part where I had to kind of heal some um, some of my avoidant attachment was um, that you also, like I was saying before, you can only heal this in relationship, whether that's in relationship to yourself or relationship to somebody else. And there are tons of practices for self-soothing and we might, you know, do an episode on that at one point, but... What I had to really accept and what so many of my clients have to accept too is that ultimately we've got to get out there and we have to practice and practicing is how we learn. And like I was saying, one thing that I, that I see us doing that's really common is we overthink things so much we just we overthink everything that we're doing because we are so afraid of our anxious attachment just ruining everything and what I would say is is really a shame about the current relationship landscape and and really the relationship landscape of you know the last few hundred years is that When you're relating with somebody, and this was something one of my mentors really um, helped me, you know, really get deep into when we're relating with somebody, we're actually relating with two people. When they're relating with us, they're really relating with two people. We're kind of getting, you know, the authentic, like beautiful version of them. And then we're also getting the conditioned version of them. And our conditioned selves is where, you know, it's kind of where all of our fears live. It's where our coping mechanisms for our attachment wounding lives. It's, it's where we project from. It's where we misjudge each other. And so, you know, she'll always say in an interaction between two people, you're really interacting between four people. And that makes it difficult to practice new skills when it comes to relating because uh, we're bringing in a fear that we're going to get it wrong and ideally what relationship would be and what this would be especially for small children is they would feel like oh relationship with mom and dad that's a good place to just practice i can get things wrong i can say you know things that might seem ignorant i can shout I can be critical I can be whatever and it's a place to just learn where I'm not going to get ridiculed and I can sort of be safely guided you know they're always going to believe the best in me (laughs) and I can I always have the opportunity to course correct to self to correct you know we don't actually often feel that in adult relationship for a number of reasons most of them being that we didn't feel that in childhood and we have to have the courage to step into practice as adults. It's another reason why I love one-to-one coaching work, group coaching work. It's another reason why I do what I do is because I want to create those practice spaces for people. I mean, you would be shocked. Like that is hard enough for people, like for my clients to show up and, and to move courageously past their resistance just in conversation with me, with somebody that they already have trusted To guide them and to see them and to hold them, to move past the resistance in their nervous system to describe what they feel in the moment, like to tell me their boundaries, to tell me what they feel ashamed of, to any number of things, that's hard enough. And, but then you take that into your, your dating relationships or uh, the date with that guy where you got to say a boundary, but you're afraid of being high maintenance, you know, or um, something that you need to tell your husband, but you're afraid of seeming critical or whatever it is. There's so much that we're not saying and that we're not practicing because we think that if we do it wrong, that'll ultimately be the end of something, or that will lead to rejection. And This is where we really have to get courageous, right? And this is, it's it's really the center point of my dating program, Chosen, 12 Weeks of Courageous Dating, is that we practice, (laughs) we practice practicing courageously. And it's a game changer in our dating lives. I do this and it's it's a core ton of everything that I do. My group coaching program, Sovereign Love, any of my courses, my one-to-one coaching is aimed at restoring the capacity to practice in our relationships. And that, for me, that is where embodied healing has the opportunity to actually happen. And then... As we, as we are navigating embodied healing, you know, we're we're setting boundaries, we're breathing consciously, we are holding our anxiety without venting it on somebody else. We're learning to consciously receive love in relationship, you know. We're learning what co-regulation really means. We're moving away from codependency, we're moving away from over-independence, all these things. And then eventually. Part of this as well, I would say, is learning just to own where you're at. It's okay and it's safe to own where you are at. To own, you know, I have a level of anxious attachment. (laughs) I have a level of avoidant attachment, of disorganized attachment. What have you. And I I even, I remember, you know, kind of saying to a a guy I was dating, uh, we were talking about attachment styles early on and he was you know he said something like oh yeah like i used to be anxiously attached like i'm not anymore but um like i'm a pretty secure person and even i consider myself incredibly secure like i look over the last 6 years and i'm astonished at how far i have come at how much it takes to trigger my attachment anxiety i used to take next to nothing and now it it takes a lot more And also, even when it is there, I know how to be led by my inner parent and not by that anxiety for the most part. Um, But this is where I need and we all need to be surrounded by relationships where there's the grace to grow, where there's the grace to practice. Sometimes your anxiety will get the best of you. You're allowed to make a mistake. You're allowed to get reactive (laughs) and then apologize. A lot of us are walking around in the fear and the rejection of never having experienced the grace to be human. And what I want you to know is that there is grace to be human and that actually you don't have to participate in any relationship that does not let you participate in grace for yourself. Um, And there's tears coming to my eyes because at the height of my religious idea of who God was, I would have said grace was so important and yet I was almost completely bankrupt of it. And I understand grace now as permission for relationship to be a practice ground for permission to be in that practice and to never at any point be sacrificing our safety or our love but it is full permission to be human in the context of relationship and and so I remember I said to this guy, you know, that was like I'm healed from the I'm from anxious attachment, I'm secure. I was like, well, you know, for my part, like I I don't think that that's something I can fully claim. You know, and I would say that even now. Like I I think my anxious attachment like it's very wired in at an incredibly deep level and it's something that I that still comes up in layers, you know and i don't mind accepting that anymore uh, because i feel so free to take care of myself and trust myself and i feel so much grace now like and i say that because i want you to know if you're hard on yourself for still not being fixed you know you actually don't have to fix it you can embrace this part of you and invite yourself into healing But you don't have to fix it. I don't know if that makes sense. I really hope it does. You are not someone that needs to be fixed. Healing is only ever touching a wound with love. It is not fixing the wound. Like if you notice, like we don't actually get to dictate how wounds are fixed or whether they heal completely or how fast they heal, nothing like that. Um, we can only give the wound medicine. We can only stitch it up. You know, we can only we can only do what we can do, and the rest we have to trust to nature, to God. Uh, we live in in partnership with an ecosystem, and our body is part of that ecosystem. And so, your attachment anxiety lives in your body, and you don't. We don't get to be masters of that. We don't get to say, it's over now. I have fixed it. I've moved on. We only ever get to be in a relationship with it and we get to bring medicine into that relationship, right? And that's really what is so beautiful. That is what is so beautiful about this process. And I just invite you to really touch yourself with tenderness and kindness here because, you deserve that, in all of your relationships, and so. Anyway, um, I think I said this wasn't going to be a super technical conversation. Yeah, I'm kind of realizing now. I think there's even more that we need to dive into, but I really just I want to, I want us to kind of reorganize our attitude toward this. I think that we have overlabeled ourselves, mislabeled ourselves, tried too hard to fix ourselves, we've been overthinking. And I love the mind. I love learning about this intellectually. I think it's an important gateway to so much. And so I don't think that it's irrelevant that we've all that we all want to learn this. And at the same time, if it needs to lead to an embodied participation in our healing over time. It takes time. It takes practice. And we don't ever really arrive. We just participate in the process. And that's the gift. Okay. I love you guys. Reach out to me. Let me know what you thought of this episode. Please leave a comment. Leave a five-star review. I mean, I just, I want to know what you guys think. And I love talking to you about this. So, yeah, let's talk more. Okay, bye.